Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Celeste Headley is an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and the best-selling author of We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. And her latest must-read is called Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving, something that's definitely resonating with me and many of us at this moment in time. Celeste, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the new book. I love the title, Do Nothing. I'm going to struggle with this one because it's hard for me to do nothing. And I know it was hard for you. Yeah. So let's start. When did you realize you needed to, quote unquote, do nothing? Uh, I was getting sick all the time. And I'm a healthy person. Um, And I think I was lying in bed. Just, I mean, how rare is it to be so sick that you are actually bedridden, right? Like where you get exhausted when you get up, right? That kind of bronchitis, that almost never happens. And yet it had happened to me like two or three times in a period of nine months. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm about to kill myself. That's what's gonna happen here. <laughs> um, and so, you know, it's, it, it's funny, this didn't start out as a book. It started out as a problem solving uh, research trip where I just tried to figure out what was going wrong. And um, I, I realized I had to make some changes or, or die. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's basically how serious that was, yeah. So give us an idea of what, what did a day in the life look like for you back then where you ran yourself into the ground? So I was still hosting a daily radio show at that point. So I'd have to get up at 4.30 in the morning. I'd get into the radio station. We'd prepare for the for the show. We would do the daily show. We'd do the wrap-up. And then often I'd have to get to a speaking engagement. So I'd leave directly from the radio station. I'd go to the airport. I'd fly to whatever city I was speaking in. I'd get up the next morning. I'd give my speech. I'd get back in a plane. I'd fly back to Atlanta and then be up the next day at 4.30 in the morning to go back and do my radio show that I so that I essentially just miss one day of work right um so it was it was it was bad (laughs) how many hours a night were you sleeping i think i was sleeping on average about four or five Ooh, are you one of those so i have i I know some people we all know some of these people are like oh yeah four to five i'm totally good i'm like i'm not one of those people are you one of those people well number one they're not (laughs) by and large they're not telling the truth like research shows us that Almost no one is in that category. There are people that only need, you know, maybe six hours, but they're very rare. Um, so I am definitely not one of them. I need my seven hours. Um, and I was tired and irritable and just pissed off all the time. You know, I, my, my, my temper was very short. Um, and that is not like me at all. So if a day in the life back then was getting up at 4.30, doing a show, getting on a plane, sleeping six hours. Fast forward to today, what does a day in the life look like now for you? So most days I get up, um, I get dressed, I take my dog for a 45-minute walk, I meditate for a half an hour, I go to the gym, or if it's a gym day, drink my coffee, and I start writing or working or whatever it is that I may be. Obviously that changes on a travel day, um, but I have pretty severe rules in place now that I only travel twice a month, (laughs) which is a lot already. Um, And then I I go through the course of my day. I invite my friend, my neighbors and friends over if they feel like having dinner, if I made too much, which happens all the time. And uh, I go to bed. So that sounds pretty civilized. Yeah. And so let's talk about that journey because you went from 
feeling terrible, running yourself into, into the ground. And in this process, talk about the aha moment when you said, I need to change. And then, and then you decide to write a book about it. Which which is a, which is an undertaking in a, in and of itself. It, it absolutely <laughs> is. But you know the reason what ended up happening was I started trying to figure out what was going wrong with me. Because here's the thing, I'd spent most of my life broke, right, and hustling, um, and I had all these ideas about how different life would be when I had money, when I had enough mm-hmm. money. And then when I did, when I finally did have enough money, I it was worse. <laughs> And then I thought, well, it must be my job, right? So I quit my job and I became my own boss and it got worse. <laughs> yes. And I was Most like, people don't realize that. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so it's not lack of money and it's not my boss. So which part of the chain is broken here? And that sent me on this research trip, which made me realize it's not actually this is not the story of me, this is the story of us. Like this is a societal problem and it didn't happen when I was born. It it stretches back a long, long, long time ago. And we're now at the point where we have some decisions to make, right? So that's sort of where the book came out of was be- me realizing that this was a societal problem. That in other words, okay, so for example, one of the things I thought was causing the problem was my smartphone, right? Of course. Obviously, the villain in the piece. <laughs> Let's go get him. <laughs> right. Tim Cook, we're coming for you. <laughs> so, I like spent more than a month. I put my smartphone away. I got a flip phone and put my SIM card in <laughs> and um, moved away from tech. And I was like, okay, this is going to solve it. I just need to become a Luddite. Um, it did not. It didn't solve it. Did it help a little bit? I mean, yeah, I think so. But it didn't, not really. I yeah. mean, I was still exhausted. I was still overwhelmed. I still got to my couch at the end of the day and was like, ah, I just want to eat popcorn and watch Netflix. So that kept me going on this idea of, okay, okay, if it's not tech, then what? And that's how the book came out was sort of the discovery. So if it's not tech, tech's a little, tech's a little bit. Yes. A little bit. There's a little bit of tech. Tech makes it much easier for us to indulge the toxic habits that we already had. (laughs) So, So in your opinion, why are so people, it seems like, more unhappy, more anxious, more depressed, more lonely than ever? And what's what's driving that? I mean, it's complicated. Um, Obviously, it took me 75,000 words to explain it, but let me try and... (laughs) Let me try and boil it down. So human beings were doing things, working and living for a certain way for the bulk of 300,000 years that Homo sapiens had been on the planet, right? And just about two to 300 years ago, we literally decided to change all of it. The way we lived, the way we worked, the way our days were structured. Um, We changed all of it because we wanted everything to be focused on industry and productivity. Time became money. The day wasn't defined by the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun anymore, right? So we are now sort of reaping the whirlwind of that decision. And we have to, we have to realize that we, we live and work quite well and have for a very, very long time. We just have to break a 250-year-old habit <laughs> that we made. That's it. That's all that has to be done. Um, we're, we're unhappy because we're, a lot of our habits are anti-human. We're just not built to work this way. I'll give you a few examples. 
Um, I want you to imagine like a, an architect, or no, an accountant or architect, either one of them, in 1970, right? And think of the, the things they had to do throughout the course of the day and how they had to get their job done, right? And now think for a moment about how much easier their job is now. All the tools they have at their disposal that make literally everything they do faster and easier. So why is that accountant still sitting at her desk for 40 hours a week? Her job takes maybe three hours a day. So what is occupying her? And this is the question we all have to ask ourselves because she doesn't need to be sitting there. And I had the same revelation when I was sitting on the couch in my house and exhausted and overwhelmed. And I started looking around my house and realizing all the things that I had that my grandmother didn't have that saved me time. And so I, I walked around my house with a notebook and started adding up the time I saved because I had a dishwasher or a robot vacuum or, you know, all of these different things, right? And I realized that some, I have, say, 20 to 30 extra hours per week than my grandmother did. And yet, she had a bowling club and played cards with her friends at least once a week and had a gardening club and all these other things. And I was like, where did she get the time? Because we should have a plethora of time on our hands. So why don't we? And it's because we're convinced, we're part of this cult where there is this belief that the harder you work, the better person you are. That is what has been indoctrinated in us. In us. It was indoctrinated in us partly intentionally by employers who wanted to make it easier to get us to work longer, right? The, the law said you can't make people work more than eight hours. They're like, well, maybe we can convince them <laughs> that they want to work more hours. Mm -hmm. And so we've all swallowed this idea that the more you, the harder you work, the more deserving you are, the better the person you are. And it's complete bunk. But don't you think there's some correlation between work ethic and success? No. You, you, you can't, I think it's hard to be lazy and succeed. You have to work. You're, you're going from one extreme to the other. Sure. Yeah. But, um, laziness has nothing to do with the Protestant work ethic. We've been convinced to believe that it has. But remember, some of the most productive people throughout history worked maybe three or four hours a day. So I think you're hitting on the point where I'm going is this is idea of working smart versus working hard. And, and what do you think? My take on this is it's all the distractions around us and that the you hit the nail on the head i think the three to four hours when you're completely focused you can get more done than eight to ten hours when you've you know you're checking email over here you're going to youtube over there maybe you're texting and all of a sudden it's like this idea of i think multitasking just makes us totally inefficient oh absolutely and and yet we use it as an efficient efficiency tool let me be clear First of all, the human brain can't multitask, right? That's not possible. Um, there are species that can. A pigeon can multitask. A human brain cannot. But yeah, you're absolutely correct. So, so let's say you're Charles Darwin, who famously... <laughs> famously, I've never had anyone say that to me. Okay. Let's just say, for example, First, you're Charles Darwin. I like you're that. You're Charles Darwin. Okay. Who famously worked maybe four hours a day. Um, and I think we can all agree was quite productive. I think he was pretty good. Yeah. I think he was pretty good. I think he's, he's, he would be one of our top guests if we were to have right. him on the podcast. Oh, quite yeah. the get. Right. Um, so he would get up. He'd do all of his morning routine. He'd sit down in his study. He would work for a few hours. He'd go out and walk through his garden with his dogs. He'd go back in his study, work for a couple more hours. And then he left 
and took a bath and had coffee with friends and went to a lecture or whatever it may be. Now, today, you may get up and have a perfectly productive morning for four hours, just like Charles Darwin. But then you're like, okay, what else can I do? (laughs) (laughs) You don't get up and walk away. And that's sort of where we're anti-human, because the human brain doesn't work like that. It needs rest, and it needs regular rest. So in Darwin's routine, you call out three things. One is getting outside nature. Yeah. Two is connection, the physical kind, Mm -hmm. not the digital kind. Three is coffee. I don't know if there's any benefit to drinking black coffee. I just like coffee. I also like coffee. But but what? what let's talk about the, the first two, or if, or if there's a, a benefit to, to, to coffee with overworking. Let, let's go there. I'm all for it. But we, we can start with nature and human connection. Yeah, it's interesting. The human body and, and mind are so beautifully adapted to healing themselves. Um, we get a little bit in our own way when we start thinking of all these complicated ways to feel better. But we're evolved to do that quite simply and cheaply. And in fact, I'm not your doctor, I'm not telling you what to do, but they have found that almost as good as an antidepressant is just to walk through trees. Mm -hmm. Nature bathing. Yeah, that is so efficient at refreshing your body and your mind that why would you not, Mm -hmm. right? It's cheap, it's analog. (laughs) You can leave your phone at home and get a break. And the other one that you mentioned, which is social social connection, is another completely inexpensive way to heal yourself. Because we are designed, beautifully designed, to take benefit, physiological, neurological, emotional benefit from just chatting with another human being. We are rewarded for doing so. It lowers your heart rate, lowers your cortisol levels, it improves your cognitive performance, Um, it does all kinds of benefits throughout your brain and body. Just that 10-minute chat that you have with a stranger, about nothing, I might add, about the weather, um, you will then perform better on a whole variety of cognitive tests. So again, it's not that deep, right? We, mm-hmm. are, we are designed to do this to ourselves and heal ourselves quite beautifully, and yet we resist it. Instead, we look up how to hack your well-being, <laughs> right? Sure. Um, what pill can I take? Can I drink Soylent Green and not leave the office? <laughs> so we we kind of need to dial it back just a little bit. Well, I love that you you mentioned human connection, and what I love even more what you what you talk about in the book is is one of my favorite numbers, Dunbar's number. Can you talk a little bit about Dunbar's number and why it's important? Right. So Robin Dunbar was trying to calculate the maximum number of people that a human being can both know and care about. And it has these concentric circles. Obviously, there's your inner circle, and it kind of goes out and out and out and out. And his um, theory is that for the vast majority of, of human history, coincidentally, right up until the Industrial Revolution, most human beings knew and cared about about 150 people. That's it. All of that changed in the 19th century. And now, of course, people will have 9,000 friends. Mm -hmm. They can't see this, but I'm using air quotes (laughs) obnoxiously um, on Facebook. Um, And you just don't have that much emotional energy. A human being has a a limited capacity um, to care about and have social energy for other people. Robin Dunbar says it's 150. I, I would guess he's probably right. Mm-hmm. He's done his homework. And it's an important number because 
he's talking about real connection, embodied connections, people that you don't um, interact with digitally, but that you actually see and speak to. The sound of the human voice is the basis of human connection, your voice alone. Um, so that's the kind of connection that he's talking about. But when we replace those embodied real connections with thousands of superficial connections. What we're talking about is thousands of horizontal connections as opposed to Dunbar's connection, which is vertical. Mm -hmm. And it, there's, it's not, they don't, you can't replace, you can't swap them out. No, I, I love what you said too. It, it's obviously important to have a great group of close people around you, but at the same time, small talk with, as Gladwell would say, those weak ties at the coffee shop or walking around the neighborhood that's important. Anyone can do that. Yeah. I mean, they, they found that even if you acknowledge each other on the sidewalk yeah. and smile at someone, it increases your feeling of belonging, that you belong in that community, right? I mean, that's how completely inexpensive and yeah. easy that is. One of my favorite quotes is Nicholas Epley, who st obviously studies human connection in, in Chicago. And he says, you know, um, almost nobody waves, but everybody waves back. <laughs> So going back, I want to go back to the work piece. So something I struggle with, I think maybe you struggle with, a lot of people struggle with is I, I love what I do. I feel like I'm, I'm living my dream. I'm mission driven. I have a ton of purpose in my life. And so it's hard for me to sometimes, well, oftentimes turn it off and stop because I love what I do. I, I can't just turn off the world of well-being. I'm curious. I'm passionate. I, I, I love it. And so what advice do you have for someone like me who struggles with just doing nothing? So yes, I struggle with this also, but keep in mind that Charles Darwin also loved what he did. And Charles Dickens, incredibly prolific, also loved what he did, also worked about four hours a day. Henri Poincaré, the mathematician, incredibly purpose-driven, worked about three and a half hours a day. Um, I could go down the list of luminaries throughout the history of time who basically worked three or four hours a day. And then if you looked at the rest of their calendar, they spent it taking a bath and <laughs> having coffee and hanging out with their family, right? Um, there is a, a very, very quick um, trend of diminishing returns if you're pushing your body Sure. beyond its its level of creativity and innovation. Um, and we think of that idle time as wasted time, but that idle time is incredibly productive time. It's going to make you better at fulfilling your purpose than if you'd spent that time working. That was for me the aha moment, was realizing that actually my leisure was as important to my purpose and my productivity as the work hours were. And by... Um, eliminating the leisure time from my day, I was actually making it harder to achieve my purpose. So what do you think, you, you always hear these stories of people who are extraordinarily success, successful, whether it's a CEO and they retire and they start playing golf and then they pass away soon after. They just lose, I'm just curious, I, I, like, what do you make of those people where their, their life is so scheduled um, they're potentially workaholics and then they retire and it's like they're lost. 
Yeah, so I think it's very difficult at this point to get a, a pure reading on any of that. And the reason I say that is because it has become so wrapped up in our sociology and our our philosophy and our moral values that the hard worker is the better person and that your job is your identity. Right. So that when you no longer have the job, then what's my, the point of my life? Right. And at this point, how do we evaluate that, right, without it? Because we have to, we have to completely dismantle that myth before we can really see what the human being is like. Here's the thing, though. We know what the human being was like before this myth began, when the steam engine first chugged its first chug in the hands of a Scottish engineer. We actually know what human beings were like. The medieval peasant worked less than half a year, right? We didn't work like this until industry became our purpose for being. So now, yes, when you believe that your work is your purpose, yep. then of course it's going to harm you to not have your work anymore. It becomes your identity. Exactly. And then that's the problem. But the problem is your work is not your purpose. Right, right. No, but I think that's the problem with the people we're talking about. It becomes exactly. your purpose, your identity, and once that is it's exactly gone, you don't right. know what to do. That's exactly right. So on that similar subject, so like the, the lines you talk about this in the book are blurring between work and home. More people are working remote. They're catching up on email, on their on their smartphone. With the lines blurring between work and home, is good or bad, in your opinion? I mean, nothing is ever completely bad. I think it's great if you're able to handle calls from your kid's school or whatever, or, or have the uh, ability to take care of personal problems while you're at work. That's perfectly fine. But the number one hours for retail shopping are between nine and five. They're also the busiest hours for porn sites, right? Like we're really nine to five at porn. <laughs> yeah. What's going on, guys? <laughs> Come on. Yeah, and I'm I'm guessing most jobs don't require you to watch porn. I'm guessing. I'll check with our editorial team. I don't think we. I don't, that's Jesus. Nine so, to five. Yeah. Yes. So the blurring has gone both ways, is what I'm saying, right? We have totally brought our work home with us and that's mostly bad we've also brought our personal life into work and that's also i think mostly bad i mean i think we need to reestablish these boundaries between the two things but again it's not entirely horrible one of the re one of the things that occurred was that in order to try to make work more comfortable because people were spending much much more time at their office managers started making it more homey, right? Putting in couches and putting in decorations and trying to make it more comfortable. The problem to our brains is that it, again, it blurred those lines to where we're not entirely differentiating between home mm -hmm. <laughs> and work. And they, your, your work family is not a family. Like that whole thing of, we're a family here. No, you're not, very much not. <laughs> So it, I think mostly it's bad, yeah. um, but there are some benefits. So for someone listening who you know, may, maybe is not going to be able to take down their work from 50 or 40 to 30 or 20, it's just not practical for them at the moment for a variety of reasons. What, what advice do you give those people? What, what are some things they can start doing to make sure that this this doesn't creep and become a major health issue. 
So there's plenty of things that you can do during the time that you have off. And the number one most important is that when you are off work, you need to really be off. And let me explain exactly what that means. So your brain doesn't distinguish between your work and you flipping through Facebook. To your brain, that's work. Your brain associates your smartphone and your tablet with work. So if you're bringing your smartphone into bed and flipping through social media before you go to bed, that's you working right up until you sleep as far as your brain and your body is concerned. Um, so you have to stop working 24-7. There's people who fall asleep with their smartphones in their hands. What you don't realize is that your brain spends a, a certain portion of its energy thinking about that phone. If you're, if you're touching it or it's visible, your brain is devoting energy and attention to preparing for a notification to come in. So number one, turn off your notifications, pretty much all of them. <laughs> and number two, you, you have to schedule some time away from your tech. I'm not telling you to throw your tech away, but you have to give your brain a break. You have to. And people always ask me, well, what about sitting there and watching Netflix? And I was like, okay, but while you're watching Netflix, what are you also doing? Right. Because almost no one just sits there and watches a movie anymore. They sit there and watch a movie and check their phones and check their tablets. I know, Narcos Mexico season two came out. It's pretty good on Netflix. Did you watch it without checking your cell phone? I did. I did. But I mentally have to take notes because there's historic, like these are real events. So I'm curious, like what really happened with Noriega? And, <laughs> I need to read. Did this really happen? This what was what was our government doing back then? This is crazy. It was craziness, yeah. Um, but back to so uh, so technology, yes. Uh, sounds like getting some nature. Getting nature, absolutely. Especially if you can take that walk without your cell phone, which would be wonderful. With a friend. Yes, this is the other thing is schedule social time the way that you would f schedule the gym. Arguably, the chat with a friend in a coffee shop is better for you than the trip to the gym. That's absolutely arguable. The other thing I would say is even if you don't schedule the social time, have the chats with the strangers. Chat with your Uber driver. Chat with your grocery store clerk. That two-minute chat is going to lift your mood. It's going to lower all kinds of negative indicators in your body and brain and lift up all kinds of positive ones. And even though every time we research it, people predict they're going to hate the small talk, <laughs> it turns out they don't. Right. It, yeah. It has all kinds of benefits. And so what do you do when you find yourself slipping? What are some of your favorite self-care practices to kind of get you back in line, so to speak? Yeah, there's a bunch of them. So I will t definitely take a very long walk with my dog. And luckily, I have a neighbor across the street who's always up for it. My Our, our dogs are best friends. So <laughs> um, I'll say, hey, I need to leave my house for a long time. And he's like, let's go. Um, so that's one of the number one things that I will do. Um, the other thing is that I really will turn off my phone and put it in a drawer. Um, and I'll do something that has no productive purpose. Like I just, I gave myself for Christmas star sourdough starter and making sourdough bread is really hard. I've made several loaves right now and they're all bad. Um, I'm not good at it yet, um, but I don't care. Like it's gonna take me a while to figure out how to make good sourdough bread. And so sometimes I'll spend an entire day cause it takes all day. Sometimes I'll spend an entire day just doing that. And it doesn't look good, 
I'm not going to be able to post it on Pinterest. <laughs> it's not particularly great to eat, but... It's the healthiest bread. It is the it healthiest is. bread. We can help you out there. We had a chef, uh, Ryan Hardy, who makes incredible sourdough bread, and he shared his recipe. We'll send it to you. Yeah, I'm going to try the Test Kitchen recipe next, but okay. I'll totally check that out. I tried the King Arthur flour recipe. Yeah. <laughs> it's complicated, uh, not successful. But I mean, again... This is not something I'm posting about. I'm not great at it, and it's okay. Well, you know, you mentioned so making bread, and and you mentioned earlier doing dishes, and we have dishwasher washers. And I remember I read something years ago that there were some people who who didn't need to wash dishes, but actually spent time in kitchens washing dishes because they they found it relaxing. Oh, absolutely! It was actually like a mindfulness practice for them. Oh, absolutely. And so I think part of the problem, too, is we have all these tools and things that do things and make it easier. But there is something to be said for doing the chores and just doing it and you're into it. And it's, it's a form of mindfulness. Absolutely. And I do that kind of stuff all the time. I write journals, my only journals in longhand with a fountain pen. And, you know, I force myself to slow down. I, I bought my I dog it. a slow bowl. Because she was wolfing through dinner. So I got her this bowl where there's like all these nooks and crannies and she has to eat slower. And it's like just sort of a something I've just accepted is that going, just slowing down a little bit and, and you know, feeling the dirt between your fingers, hypothetically yeah. speaking, um, is sometimes really beneficial. Boredom is productive. <laughs> Boredom is very productive. It is a fecund state of mind. And I get some of my best ideas when I'm si uh, where I have actually experienced boredom again. As of like a year and a half ago, I experienced boredom and I was like, what is this I'm feeling? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm bored. And think about how many times when we were growing up, you'd be like, I'm bored, right? It never happens anymore. Kids aren't bored anymore. But it's unbelievably good for the brain and ideas and creative problem solving because your brain is working in the background making new connections and unexpected connections and it's doing all this stuff because your brain is idle it's not focused on accomplishing a task so it can just sit there and kind of futz around <laughs> yeah it's good boredom is good so so much of what you touched on I, I, it is the power of human connection which I love and I also love the power of the weak tie and small talk because it, it's so easy and so i must ask you, you did a viral ted talk about how to be a better conversationalist in a book we need to talk so i'd be remiss not what to, to not ask you how do we have a better conversation and what are your tips i mean the first one i think is clear which is don't try to look at your phone <laughs> <laughs> while you're having a conversation. The vast majority of people admit to checking their phone while they're talking with friends and family. So no, that's a big nope. Um, the other thing is, is that I, I think we need to, you need to cultivate curiosity. Um, we are all so focused on building our own brand and establishing our own identities in our conversations and showing what we know and showing our thoughts and, hey, did you read this? Did you read this? Did you see that one video? Um, that we have sort of lost the, the goal in a conversation to be curious about what someone else knows and figure out what they have to say. Um, and, you know, at the end of that, that TED Talk, I say, you know, be prepared to be amazed because it is amazing what other people know. And we're missing it. We're totally missing it. People have unbelievable stories 
to have to tell you and you're missing it because you're telling your own story. And sometimes we all know we do this. We'll tell the same story to 16 different people. We'll tell it over and over and over again. Whereas you're missing out on all these people. They have cool <laughs> stuff to tell you. Especially senior citizens. Oh, absolutely. The, the older the person, the better the story. Oh, my God. They have seen some... Can I swear? <laughs> of course. You do whatever you want. They have seen some shit. I mean, <laughs> shit has happened to them, right? They're more interesting because more things have happened to them. And you're kind of missing out. And they've also... You know, I tell this to executives all the time, which is that why on earth would you hire a smart, intelligent, creative workforce and then not listen to their ideas? Why are you constantly telling them how to do stuff and not actually taking advantage of this brain trust that you have sitting in your office? You spent all the money to hire them. Listen to them. Well, so much of it comes being a good listener. Exactly. And that's hard. And, and I'll give people an out here. <laughs> um, this is something I talked about in the first book. Um, it's hard for human beings. I mean, for homo sapiens, period. <laughs> it, it's not easy. The research that we have stretches back decades before the smartphone ever came out. It's, we struggle. And if you've ever been in a room with a baby, you know that we're not born knowing how to listen well, right? Correct. I, mean, <laughs> I experience that every day. Yes. There are species whose listening skills determine survival. Our survival is determined by how loudly we can scream and get the attention of an adult to come help us, right? And that's kind of pe some people's strategies for the rest of their lives. Um, but we struggle to listen, and it's always going to be an effort. I mean, that's what I would warn people of. It's, it's never going to come easy. So two things that happen in a conversation, which can be awkward. One is the awkward silence. Two is the accidental interruption. You've got some tips for us there. I do. So the awkward silence generally... Okay, so... First, <laughs> I will console everyone in telling you, you are not as awkward as you think you are. And we actually have clinical research to prove this. There's this incredible study called the liking gap um, in which they, for a year, studied interactions with people in all different settings, people who knew each other really well, people who just met, all different kinds. And they realized a surprising thing, which is that people like you more than you think. And people enjoy your conversation more than you realize. And the reason you don't realize it is because you're so wrapped up in analyzing yourself. You're so wrapped up in saying, wait, was that funny? Why did they make that face? Wait, was that stupid? Was that racist? Like, why are they looking off in another direction? This person hates me. This is what's going on in our heads. And we're missing all the signs the other person is giving us that they're just enjoying our company. So yes, you may feel awkward during that silence, but it's a good chance the other person doesn't think you're awkward. You know, people always talk about embarrassing moments and you tend to think like, oh, wow, I'm so embarrassed. Everyone's looking at me or everyone cares. And the, the, what people will say also is people care less about you than you really think. <laughs> And Who don't also, know you, the stranger. It's like, oh, okay, whatever. But everybody else feels awkward yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. If you fell down as you're walking through a restaurant, they're just glad it wasn't them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, people are not judging you the way that you think you are. And it's partly because we're all of us too wrapped up in thinking about ourselves and how we're coming off, right? They're not thinking about you because they're worried about themselves. So, A, people <laughs> like you more than you think. And B, they're thinking about themselves, themselves. and not about you. <laughs> And what about the same same goes for the accidental interruption? 
Yeah, I think the same sort of thing. I mean, I, I just feel like this is simpler than we make it out to be. Well, I think why I'm asking this, my theory is because so many of us are just used to texting and communicating digitally that the art of the conversation is an art that it, worried about losing a little bit. And specifically when it comes to difficult conversations, that's a whole nother thing. I just yeah. don't think we're, I think we're kind of losing I, that. I would agree with you. So let me take this a little deeper. Um, so for example, a lot of people these days are very anxious to call themselves introverts. Um, you're probably not um, an introvert. Um, introversion and extroversion, the, the terms that Carl Jung came up with, describe the absolute ends of the spectrum. Right, they're the extreme ends of the spectrum. And even Carl Jung said that a true introvert wouldn't be able to survive. That person would be completely insane. Doesn't exist. The vast majority of people are neither introverts nor extroverts. Those are very rare. The vast majority of people are ambiverts, um, which means sometimes you enjoy being in a crowd of people and sometimes you like being at home in your PJs by yourself and quiet. That's what an ambivert is. An ambivert can adapt. If an ambivert is required to go to an office party and be nice and chat with everybody, they can, mm -hmm. which means they're the most healthy. Um, things are very difficult if you actually are an introvert and an extrovert. But here's where the danger comes in. Because it's become a little bit trendy to call yourself an introvert, it means we are justifying choosing not to connect with other people. It means we are justifying sitting on the couch and texting back and forth instead of meeting up with our friends to go to a movie. Mm. Um, we say, this is what I need for my self-care, right? I can't handle that right now. And it's usually wrong, might be sometimes right, but usually not correct. In fact, the social interaction is going to make you feel better than that night spent on the couch and texting back and forth is no replacement for embodied communication. So it becomes a vicious cycle. And the reason for this is you think of yourself as an introvert, you start avoiding social interaction, which means that your social skills start to degrade, which means every time you do have a social interaction, it goes worse than you planned, which makes you more likely to think of yourself as an introvert and isolate yourself. And we are now in a loneliness epidemic. Mm -hmm. And loneliness is as bad for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Loneliness literally degrades your internal organs. They did um, one longitudinal study in the UK and followed a massive group of men and found that based on the number of significant social interactions they had, they could predict who would still be alive in 10 years time with a fair degree of accuracy. That's how important significant social interaction is for a human being. We can't live without it. So as we are in this vicious cycle of, of introversion and social isolation, we're killing ourselves. And the um, life expectancy has dropped for three years in a row in the United States. And they asked the lead, doc, the lead author on the report um, why this was happening. And he said, despair. Hmm. So it's, it can become cyclical. It can become self-perpetuating. And it has to be intentional that you break out of it. Make the small talk while getting coffee. That's right. That's it. That's right. It's it's 30 seconds out of your life. What's great about it too is it, it, it's baby steps. It's like putting one foot one foot in the the uh, the kiddie pool. And Hi. they're paid to be nice to you. That looks good. What did you get? Exactly. <laughs> good morning. Exactly. <laughs>
Good morning. So my, my last question I'll have a little fun with. We love narcissists here at Mind Buddy Green, or at least we love talking about them. <laughs> and then what what you talked about previously is conversational narcissists. I'm like, I haven't heard that one, but it's totally brilliant, and I know these people. So let's talk about... <laughs> to be fair, this is a term and coined by the sociologist Charles Derber. Um, and it's to describe the way... He was talking specifically about Americans, though I don't think it's just Americans. Um, he's talking about the how good we are at turning conversations back to ourselves. And he described this through shift and support responses, right? So you come to me and you say, um, hey, I'm going to go get a pair, new pair of shoes. And I go, oh, God, I need a new pair of shoes, too. These are worn all the way through. I've had them for like four years. I have just shifted <laughs> the attention of the conversation away from you and onto me. But we also do it subtly, right? Like <laughs> sometimes we do it by withholding attention. Like you'll say, I got to get a new pair of shoes. And I'll go, hmm. <laughs> and you'll say, yeah, I might go out to that new place that's, you know, downtown. And you'll go, oh. And you'll be like, so what are you doing today? And I'll be like, well, I'm going to do blah, blah. And then I reward you with my attention because the conversation has turned to me. These are ways that we become narcissists in our conversation. It's by constantly shifting. If you think of it in terms of camera work, it's as though we're, we're on a movie together and I'm constantly pulling the camera back to my face, <laughs> right? Um, a support response would be, Obviously, if you were to say, I got to get a new pair of shoes, and I go, what kind do you need? You mean like you're getting some sneakers, or what's going on with the shoe situation? That's a support response. I can even shift it back. Like I could go. Yeah, how do you do that appropriately? Right. Like I could say, oh, I need some shoe, new, pair, new pair of shoes too. Do you want to go together? Or what kind are you looking for? I need sneakers. What kind do you need? Right. I can take it and then shift it back just like a game of catch. I can catch the ball and then throw it back to you. But the conversational narcissism is when you're hogging the ball. We all know those people. We do. Well, congrats on the book. Thank Everyone you. go pick up, do nothing. We all need to start doing nothing or try to do a better job of it. Very important book. Thank you so much, Celeste. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.